Hello and welcome to the Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. In this series, I want to explore how the coronavirus has and is changing the ways in which we live. From its impact on our social, psychological and physical well-being, to its effect on our businesses, economies, our cultures and the climate. Crucially, at the heart of my inquiry, I want to unearth what unexpected opportunities this situation may bring, not only for our own lives, but also for the ways in which we want to build our future. I hope you'll join me as we dive into these big questions. And as always, if you'd like to know more, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahai.com forward slash the high podcast. And you can also reach out to me personally on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahai. And if there's anyone you know who's really struggling right now, who you feel might be supported by the topics and themes and conversations that we hold within this podcast, please do send them a link. Thank you again for joining me in this strange time. I hope you enjoy the show. This episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Gemma Milne, a science and technology writer, whose book, Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It, just recently came out. Her work explores science, technology, and the broad cultural issues surrounding their advancements, and she has a particular interest in deep tech, including biotech, agriculture, energy, space, health, quantum computing, and AI. Gemma is also a deep tech advisor to governments, investors, and other organizations working in these spaces, and she's the co-founder of Science Disrupt, a media organization that connects and showcases innovators and entrepreneurs creating change in science. In this rich conversation, we talk about everything from hype, advertising and fake news, to simplified narratives and emotion-laden messaging, and how all of these things can influence our perception of the world and the situations around us. We explore why there's such a great need for robust critical thinking, especially in this moment, and why it might serve us better not to think so much in terms of fixing broken systems, but assessing them according to the values on which they were built, so that we might more consciously choose the values on which to redesign them. So Gemma, thank you so much for joining me today. Where are you uh, hailing in from? Thank you for having me. Um, I am hailing in from Bethnal Green in London, East London. Oh, I miss East London. (laughs) I know. We actually just moved here in February. So, um, you know, I'd spent a lot of time working in East London, not living here. And I was all excited. Oh, I'm going to get to know this area so well. And then a month later, it was like, you must just stay in your flat and not really walk about very much. So uh, (laughs) I still got a bit of exploring to do as a citizen and a liver as opposed to a worker. Yeah, it's going to be wild when they finally swing open those doors. Um, So I want to start with a question question from your perspective what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now oh my goodness what a huge question <gasps> do you mean about um <laughs> do you mean in, in respect to coronavirus or just in general you can you can answer both however you feel moved to answer oh my goodness um oh gosh i mean probably one of the main i would say probably the main word at the moment is probably confusion mm. um which sounds really um it sounds really pessimistic to say that 
But equally, I think, and hopefully we'll, I can get onto this in a, in a roundabout way that makes sense, I think there's a, there's a level of optimism as well in that. So what I mean by confusion is, you know, on the face of it, there's a lot of, um, we don't really know what's going on with the coronavirus pandemic. Information is really difficult to sift through. Um, we don't really know what our leaders are all necessarily doing, how they're making decisions, why they're making decisions. We don't always necessarily know who to trust. Um, and there's a lot of information out there in general, whether it's pandemic related or general life on earth related, mm. that sometimes just quite challenging to make sense of cut through feel like you're on top of I, I don't I'm probably not the only person that feels like they've always got a million tabs open to read and never really getting around to, to getting to them mm. but one of the things that I think is kind of interesting about the time we're in and, and when I say confusion maybe that opens up a, a sense of opportunity is that I feel like we're, there's a bit of a shift happening right now where before there was a big push to try and get simple, straight, absolutist answers. Mm. And we've kind of seen this over the last couple of years, particularly in the sort of political sphere, where it's sort of which side are you on? Are you pro or against really complex topics that frankly don't have a pro or against answer most of the time? But we've been asking ourselves and asking our politicians and asking our leaders to try and pick a side. And actually, I think with everything that's happening with the pandemic, it's exposing just how complex our world really is and that when you take absolutist strategies to try and navigate that, it doesn't really work. And I think particularly things like everyone understanding now how supply chains work and Mm. seeing how kind of vulnerable they can be, how intertwined different systems are from the healthcare systems, the education system to, you know, how you get your food delivered to your door or how whether or not Amazon can actually fulfill what they say they want to fulfill. So there's an opportunity here where I think maybe we can start getting away from what I see as very dangerous absolutist stuff that's trying to solve this idea of confusion and maybe we'll be a bit better at sitting in confusion and realizing that that's actually how you work out what's going on in the world Mm. I love this idea of being able to sit in confusion and kind of bear it I think and what's really exciting is by the time this conversation goes out your new book will have already come out and it's called Smoke and Mirrors How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past (laughs) It which is so pertinent right now Um, and in it you talk about hype among other things as potentially oversimplified narratives as it pertains to opportunities for AI life sciences climate tech Mm -hmm. and the list is fascinating and it continues so maybe we can dive into that as well what what is hype because i know this is probably quite um a powerful word so what Mm. is it for you and how does it work how does it show up yeah it's it's an interesting one every time i interviewed someone for this book and i interviewed about 60 different experts across you know all, all the sort of fields that you alluded to in science and tech and um Every time I interviewed someone, or almost every time I, I asked them, you know, could you define hype? Could mm. you tell me what, what hype means to you? And almost always it resulted in quite an emotional answer, like, a, oh, it's an annoying thing, or it's a thing that gets in my way, or, <laughs> oh, it's a necessary evil, but I don't like it. And it, it was it was a very sort of emotionally charged word that brought up a lot of stuff for people, and particularly in science and tech, where pe- experts seem to see it as this thing that's that's frustrating and annoying and that's certainly where I started with when I wanted to write this book but when you actually take a step back and look at it from a logical perspective um, you know the definition of hype is the use of advertising for publicity or loud marketing or using advertising to get your messages across and when you look at it from this perspective you see that it's actually a tool you know it's it's not this 
horrible thing that's making everything terrible. It's a it's a thing that people use for a purpose and sometimes it's used well and other times not so much. And the way that I kind of try and describe the difference between hype and other kinds of problematic messages um, is this. So if you think about going to a magic show as consensual fooling so you know you're 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 saying i'm going to go into the show and i'm happy to be fooled or i'm happy that they're going to try and fool me and i'm going to try and work it out right um non-consensual fooling is is lying right Mm. non-consensual fooling is really quite a nice way of saying lying um to some degree hype i the way i think about it is that can sometimes result in accidental fooling where the person who's putting the message out is not necessarily trying to mislead not trying to trick you not trying to you know send you down the wrong garden path but when the message is taken in the wrong context or maybe charged words are used or or it's you know said in a certain way that's not very responsible the person on the receiving end of it can can be misled and can sort of end up thinking things that are not quite true Mm. or very very untrue in some cases so um so this is kind of how i think of hype Mm, that's fascinating because actually if we think right now especially the ways in which we use language to convey whatever message it is that we're trying to convey, and especially when you dig into the world of private WhatsApp groups and the way in which misinformation is um, grabbed upon and mm. then circulated, I think your point about the fooling and the consensual fooling, there is an emotional element that really sits at the heart of that. And I wonder what your thoughts are around how right now, with so much uncertainty and confusion and fear around you know, clearly we can be more susceptible to this because we're not engaging maybe as analytically as we might be able to. What are some of the ways in which you've seen simplified narratives play out and hype play out during this time? Gosh, I mean, in so many different ways. And I, and actually, funnily enough, a lot of people have sort of said to me, oh, how do we beat the hype with coronavirus? And I, I'm kind of like, actually, do we have enough hype? I'm not sure we're using hype very effectively right now. I think there's neither too much of it or too strong an amount of hype it's that we don't have enough being used in a way that's useful so what i mean by that is we have these kind of strong narratives like in the uk we have stay at home protect the nhs save lives right that's the kind of three-pronged catchphrase of the uk government the problem is it's very sticky but it doesn't really mean anything it's super vague and Mm. people don't really know how to interpret it it's like stay at home well sometimes you can go for a run but don't stop at a bench because a policeman will tell you to leave and you can go shopping but it's better to get it delivered but don't burden the post office too much Mm. and you know you get that it's so conflicting very difficult to understand what that translates to in terms of like day-to-day action so we do have simplified narratives and we're we're able to get them across but they're not necessarily very powerful in the way hype is in the sense that it's they're not effectively getting people to do something or believe something strong it's resulting in confusion whereas on the other hand where we are starting to see hype is we're seeing a lot of disinformation i mean look at all the stuff around 5g for instance i would put that more in fake news more so than hype um because it is misinformation as opposed to people saying something and it being misinterpreted one example where i think hype has had quite a peculiar and interesting role and i think it's an example that maybe showcases a bit of what i'm trying to say with this idea of a tool um 
there was the Oxford study that came out a couple of weeks ago, mm. I think it was now, where it suggested that about half of the UK population had been infected already. Wow. And the Financial Times covered the study and, you know, it came out to not excitement because people were worried, but it was very loud and, oh my goodness, over half the population infected already, what does this mean? And then it was like the next day or two days later, um, a load of scientists bumped together and wrote a rebuttal basically saying actually the methods used weren't that great mm. and um, we shouldn't have reported on it like this and, and it's wrong. Um, it's not over half the population infected or at least the data doesn't show that. And what I thought was really interesting about this is that the way the narrative shifts, so we had this kind of like half the population is infected and then no, they're not. We don't know for sure. And then we had these scientists are fraudsters. <laughs> and then we had scientists shouldn't, you know, release this information. And these kind of like pushing. And what was missing in all in all of those kinds of narratives was realism around how science is done. Mm. And you'll know this from from the psychology field. Like this paper was a preprint. And, you know, over the last 10 years, there's been so much movement to try and make science more open, more transparent. Yes. And preprints has been, you know, a big part of trying to get science out more quickly and so that it's not behind this barrier until the, the, the point of publication. You know, it's for people to comment on and make better. And normally the press are not necessarily covering preprints to such a degree. They kind of wait for the final paper to be published. So this was a preprint. And the scientists behind it were not bad people. They were putting out what they'd done early, you know, to to get feedback. And if there was methods that were done badly, that's fine. You you change them, make them better. Mm. But even this idea that a paper is is truth and fact and real. So where I kind of see hype playing interesting roles at the moment is we're getting we are getting simplified narratives, but they don't really mean anything, so they're not giving any direction. Then we're getting these loud narratives that change on a really regular basis and and at no point actually reflect the reality of anything. And nobody's jumping on what I think is actually a really simplified narrative that hype could be really useful um, in terms of trying to get people to, to believe it and understand it is things are complex and we don't really know what's going on. That's That's probably the only truth I think mm. at the moment is we don't know what an exit strategy looks like because we don't know what's going to happen over the next two weeks. We don't know what's going to happen if we don't get a vaccine soon. We don't really know what the true numbers are in care homes because it's really, really hard to get those, uh, get that data. You know, And instead we keep going with these, how do we try and answer these questions with absolutist um, answers? And I feel like using the tool of hype to actually get people to be a bit more comfortable with the fact that it's we're in this once in a lifetime once in a century sort of um situation and keeping relying on the old ways of communicating things is is not going to work we have to be a lot more comfortable with with complex systems mm. and i wish that there was a bit more focus on that some journalists are doing that and some publications are doing a really really great job of trying to showcase the system but the hunger that each and every one of us has for answers and for clarity i think sometimes stumps that job so I, I wish that hype was being used to stop people from trying to get these definite answers that nobody has it is tricky isn't it I mean I think it's also um a cultural thing potentially I mean I know that for instance in the states if you want to see it through the lens of experiment it's such an interesting experiment and mm. in how people seek out and consume and propagate information but one of the things I thought was really fascinating was a comparison between the ways in which the New York governor Andrew Cuomo is naming the uncertainty and giving out information as and when it comes mm. with flexibility, with an acknowledgement that the situation is exactly as you've said. It's it's uncertain, yeah. it's complex, it's nuanced, it's 
ever evolving and data is coming in as we gather it. And even that has issues. So yeah. someone who's actually able to name within the political sphere, potentially to his own cost, to name all of that. Yes. Compared to um, another approach, which is, I mean, it's not, yeah, it's not even just hype. It's a whole different kind of thing. But I think there is an appetite for people to hear um, that what they're experiencing isn't crazy, that actually many of us are uncertain. And yes. so I wonder if there is an opportunity there to say, okay, well, if enough of us start speaking to the uncertainty of the situation, if enough of us face into the fragility that's being exposed of our interconnected systems, then maybe actually if we can zoom out enough, if enough of us can zoom out enough, then maybe we can start to consider our world through a different lens, maybe through a lens of values instead of thinking well how do we break apart these systems and analyze them better say okay well mm-hmm. what's the result of the systems that we have currently in place how might we be able to actually move towards something that is more generative that is less fragile that is more locally resilient and I know that's something that you've talked about quite a bit in conversations mm-hmm. I've heard you had uh, is around this is around values and how to yeah understand systems that have been built based on the values on which they were founded. Can you speak a bit about that? Because that's totally fascinating. Sure. Um, so uh, for anyone who wants a deeper dive on this, <laughs> that, that that's the sort of main argument of the food chapter, which is the first chapter of the book, which is basically this. It's like instead of trying to fix a broken system or think about a system as, as broken, actually look at it in terms of the values on which it was built on and the values by which you think it should be built on. And so if you were to take the food system as an example, the food system as it exists right now is actually not broken. It works very, very well based on the value of that it was you know originally built on which is just lots and lots of food high production um so it doesn't matter if the food is unhealthy it doesn't matter if it kills the land it's like short-term high production that's what the food system runs on it runs very well but if we want a food system that feeds people who are hungry feeds people better who are you know overweight which is you know it's a, a bigger problem in some sense than hunger in the world is better for the planet um is sustainable over time you know going to feed people in the long term as well as in the short term then you can kind of look at the system and go okay this is not going to work for these values we need to redesign and you know it's funny when i was writing this um this food chapter, I suppose I was making this argument and I was like, God, this is so idealistic, Gem. I mean, how on earth are we going to get people to actually try and <laughs> redo this? And, you know, I kind of use, I use the example of subsidies. I was sort of saying that's a sort of short term way. If you switch the incentives within the system, you might be able to, to switch the overall value. Mm. But actually now with what's going on with, with the pandemic, it sounds really flippant to say this because obviously god the the death count and i mean it's it's a horrific time for so many people in terms of real lives Mm. but if you were to try and find some form of optimism um i think there's a there's a a feeling amongst people i don't know if it's i don't have data i don't know if it's the majority people but i'm certainly seeing it more than i was a couple of months ago mm. this feeling that this is a bit of an opportunity to not just fix what we had before and go back to what we had before but exactly that redesign based on new values or better values or whatever it's almost like in the past when people have said this doesn't work and the answer is like it's too complicated to try and change it because you're going to break everything yeah. it's like well everything's broken now so now we have the opportunity to actually build differently <laughs> um so you so you're absolutely right and i think the idea of people building based on values is, I mean, we've been talking about this for years and I don't think it's actually that difficult to define mm. what those values are. I think the problem has more been 
God, this is going to, you have to upend entire systems. You know, if you think of it, something, say, for instance, like an energy system, you've got, you know, pipes and grids and so many people involved that trying to change anything is really difficult and any new innovations have sort of had to slot into what exists. At the moment, it's kind of like, well, is this now an opportunity to build in a different way as opposed to just going back and everything slotting in again? So I suppose I have a level of optimism mm. there, but you're you're right about it sounds pithy but like value-led thinking kind of has a bit of uh it's it's time to shine shall we say and (laughs) systems-based thinking too right like this idea of looking at the interconnectedness of of things and understanding how they work at a deeper level and not sort of saying oh we can fix this really big problem with this one thing but rather going okay let's try and map what this looks like try and find the cogs in the system that are a bit stuck need a bit of oil and the huge big cogs that just are absolutely ill-fitting we need to replace those do you know what I mean like looking at it holistically as opposed to just going oh this app do you know what it's going to change the future of food (laughs) nailed it sold it do you know what I mean yeah it's that whole kind of like I keep thinking about this sort of tech bro approach of we just need to optimize or we just need to create this thing and it's going to solve Mm. everything. And to me, it just, it feels like a very young attempt at solving a very complex problem. And it is this, this whole thing of, I don't know, I keep coming back to this idea that on the one hand, it doesn't acknowledge the complexity of what's happening. But on the other hand, we're kind of playing into this desire for something simple to help us solve the situation. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the issues with pandemics such as these or difficult times, so for instance, in times of war, where there is so much uncertainty, is that it's so hard for us as creatures to not fall into this trap of fear and reaching for the simplest answer. Yeah. Especially when you're not in a privileged position and you're having to deal with, well, you know, where's my money going to come from? I've got an elderly parent who's who's unable to breathe right now. Like, like the really, the, the visceral fact of survival, which... Mm-hmm. is is a reality for a lot of people. So I wonder, one of the things I want to dive into a little bit is about the use of emotion in narratives, because what I found that's super fascinating is when people have exciting, well, potentially really exciting information to share, especially in the sciences, in psychology, it's easier, I think, because people see maybe more of an immediate application to behavior and society and relationships. But when it comes to sciences, there seems to be this desire to be so objective that we forget the human element and I think that the sciences end up being the poorer for it so not finding a way to communicate results and potential applications with the human touch with a story behind it Mm. Um, and I'm not talking about sort of going full down the way of the road of hype but just to make it more humanized and more accessible what are your thoughts around around that and the role that that kind of approach that kind of narrative building could have in getting people to think more critically and to access this information. Sure. So I think there's there's two ways of thinking about these sort of the human-based points when it comes to science and tech communication, if you're to kind of look at it more broadly. In some sense, we really need um, very emotional narratives around science and tech in order for people to be more comfortable with it and to jump in and to support um to vote accordingly you know that <laughs> it's important that when there's something really complex and um, which a lot of science and tech is particularly nowadays where everything is so siloed so deep you know um we have to use sometimes simplified sometimes mm. overly emotional narratives just so that people are kept informed or at least kept in the loop um but on the other side 
emotion and human narratives can sometimes mm, push people a little bit too far away from objectivity so mm. so let me give you an example um robots are going to steal our jobs is a perfect example of a very <laughs> very human narrative that i think is really problematic and in some ways quite dangerous so you think that that's quite a human narrative right this idea of the effect of automation on people um and you know is ai worthy of having our jobs is it clever enough to replace us what is the value of our jobs what's the value of creativity so on and so forth like it opens up a lot of interesting quite philosophical questions Mm. but if you reframe the narrative and put it in a less sort of shall we say emotional way and say instead corporate executives are making decisions to replace human labor with robotic automation you suddenly have a completely different kind of um well it's not quite as clickbaity for instance you probably wouldn't get as many ads on that one (laughs) It's, it's, it's not quite as smooth but it's a completely different reaction, right? Because suddenly you're going, well, corporate executives are deciding, which is a a very sort of um, taking the power away feeling from you. Robot stealing jobs has that too, but it's this other force that, you know, we don't have any control of that whatsoever. We do have control of corporate executives. We can hold people to account. And replacing humans with robotic automation, you're suddenly going, well, what does that mean? Is that a good thing to do? Is that a fair thing to do? You know, and, and suddenly you have different conversations around, well, is productivity something we should all always be striving for? And mm. what does profit mean nowadays? And is it fair to kind of do this if you reskill people? And should we have universal basic income? Like things that are less philosophical, shall we say, and a lot more immediate, maybe less sexy to put in an article. But frankly, stuff that's, I would say, far more important to have regular people thinking about i don't necessarily i think it's interesting to have um have people thinking about whether or not the singularity is going to happen or whatever that's <laughs> that's a fun thing to do on a sunday but i think more people need to be thinking about well what are you know company people who run companies right now doing and is that right and is or is that wrong or is that fair and in which, which context so Emotion-based narratives are needed in order to get people involved and, and to get, you know, because this idea of robots are going to steal their jobs, almost everyone's heard that narrative. Mm. But if you said to them, do you know what that means in terms of automation at Siemens? It might not necessarily translate in the same way as it does for someone who works in the space. So I think, I don't know, I mean, it's it's a difficult one because science is complex and tech is complex. And not just that, people think that it's complex, and and I know that maybe sounds like I'm saying the same thing, but I think sometimes the fear of it being complicated stops people from diving in and trying to work out what's going on and yeah. play a part in it. You know, I studied maths at uni and the amount of people that say to me, oh my God, I'm terrible at maths. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's one or the other. You either get someone saying I'm terrible at maths or they say, I, I did maths as well. Let's have, let's nerd out. You know, it's literally one or the other. And, you know, other than being like, God, that's a damn shame. Math is amazing. I'm so sad that more people don't do it. It's also this kind of, it's a stopper. People don't allow Mm -hmm. themselves to try and work it out because it's, oh, I don't do that. That's not for me. That's too hard. So it's a really difficult balance to strike where you want to encourage more people in and we in the sciences we need more people in we need more people particularly when you start talking about decision making we need more people having a say on what's going on in terms of future society but if we don't use these narratives and they don't cut through and they don't get to people then then what's the point so Mm -hmm. um i think one sort of question that i'm trying to encourage 
people to ask a bit more and whether that's me asking it more as a journalist so that it's out there but also you know if I'm doing a talk or a podcast or whatever I like to ask the question to try and make people think of it is you know do we do we want this or do we need this and I think this is something that anyone could ask regardless of your scientific background and that is kind of what puts the human touch on on science and tech it kind of makes you pause for a second and go why as a society are we even bothering to do this and Mm. is it worth the potential downfall and I think that's the key question we're always trying to ask as journalists who are interested in the societal effect of science and tech. That's fascinating it's interesting because as you're speaking especially to that point of people almost kind of putting a barrier between them and the thing they're worried they can't do and your example of math is perfect because my dad my dad taught me physics at A-level and um, I would never have studied it at A-level unless he hadn't taught me at GCSE when I had a shitty teacher at school who mm. couldn't teach me. So he taught me the whole mm. taught me the whole syllabus in a half term and I managed to pass. But, um, but it was this thing of, we've had this conversation, he and I often, because my brother is much more interested in the maths and I'm less so. And he always said to me growing up, it's not that you can't do it, it's that you think you can't do it. And I think there is something to your point of mm-hmm. that when it comes to engaging people in complex subjects, whether it's understanding the complexity of climate collapse and biodiversity Mm -hmm. and interconnected systems and how they work. And you think, okay, well, that's really, really complex thing to get people's heads around. And then suddenly within six months to a year, you see that an organisation, I'm thinking about Extinction Rebellion, but also um, some of the school strikes, an organisation, several organisations have been Mm -hmm. able to come together to gather complex information create content around that information that is simple enough that it's accessible but truthful enough that it's useful and then give that to people as a starting point on which to build their knowledge so that by the end you end up with you sort of upskilling a cultural dialogue to the point where people actually are armed with the information that they require to start to have more generative conversations based on science and I think that there is a real possibility that if we can just shift people a little bit more towards what you're saying to sort of kind of remove that stopper and say okay well what's what's the bare minimum that we need to be able to offer an individual in terms of fact and communicate it in a way that is emotive enough and connecting enough that they can then digest that and then build from there and I think mm-hmm. there's a real I also share the sense of optimism that there is a possibility right now to to notice that as something that we're lacking in various cultures and to really try to start to address it. What, what do you think? Um, where would you start in addressing it, in helping to get people to maybe take those first tentative steps? Sure. No, I, I mean, I, I literally couldn't agree with you more. And I think what, what you said, um, I can't remember the exact wording you used, but you were saying it was sort of simple enough for people to understand, but truthful enough that they that they kind of um, mm. get it and trust it and all that sort of thing. Um I I really believe that quite a lot of particularly science and tech communication is is patronizing towards the audience. It kind of thinks that the audience doesn't care or is too scared. And so tries to sort of do this explainer that's fun and exciting. And a lot of adults that doesn't really resonate, kind of feels like you're back at school or it feels childlike or it makes you feel more dumb, all these sorts of things. And so for me, my my way of kind of my form of science communication, shall we say, is is communicate the system, find a way to communicate the system. And, you know, if you were to sort of, well, visualise a system like a web, you know, with the little nodes where all the, the, mm. the sort of strings kind of intersect and then you have this big sort of mind map, it's like, what nodes do I have to tell people about 
and then let them make the connections and sort of play in the map themselves Mm. and I think that for me that's always the best way to try and get people to not only understand something but to start owning it and start owning their own knowledge and their own opinion and Mm. and you know how it reflects to them and all these sorts of things and um, I, I read this really great book called um theoretical minimum Oh, do you know this is I've been asked this question before and I forgot the author of this book and I've done it again just now awkwardly <laughs> but anyway theoretical minimum it's a physics book you can google it you'll find it um it's really great but anyway this this book theoretical minimum and what the the author was thinking was basically like what is the theoretical minimum what is the the this this foundations the basics of physics that I need to teach people so that they can either just know the basics or they can Mm. literally go and study physics themselves what is like that foundational knowledge and I always sort of strive to find that in in the systems that I'm talking about so whether it's the energy system whether it's the food system whether it's you know how science fraud works which is what I'm currently working on and basically be like okay who are the players what are the different sort of market factors shall we say that affect this um you know who are the who are the companies who are the politicians you know and what different lenses do you have to look at through you know an economic lens a a, a sort of geopolitical lens an environmental lens you know how do you basically just kind of get that down on paper and essentially plan a few questions and then let people try and work out for themselves and so i think that the first step to try and get more people to do this is frankly to empower people to try and think like this more, which is critical thinking, you know, teaching that in schools, mm. but also being far more open with it in the public um, the public sphere in terms of how we communicate. So instead of doing these absolutist, you know, kind of this is the way things are, it's going, this is how things are going and this is the system in which it exists and these are the kind of question open questions that are there for this industry right and kind of letting people mm. in I, it's wonderful when you say when you say to someone he, you know explain quantum computing to a certain degree that they can go ah i know what the open problem is right now or i know what the the issues are i know that noise is an issue you know you don't need to have it doesn't take long to explain that and it, you don't need to have a phd in quantum computing to kind of get involved with the industry enough so you can follow it and so i think that it's it's a sort of sense of how do we identify those nodes as communicators and how do we try and encourage people and empower people to once they're kind of given those nodes explore them without feeling like it's not their job or they're not allowed or it's too difficult for them um and I think the final point which I also try and do in the book and I you know I wrestled with how to do this without making it blameful is make the point that this is actually every citizen's responsibility in the same way that we get people to, we ask people to vote, we say it's really, really important to vote, to, you know, you can't really complain about the bad things of politics if you don't vote, you know, it's kind of the same with tech. If you're not getting involved in the discourse, if you're not trying to kind of keep on top of what's going on, and that doesn't mean watching the news every day, it just means when you read something or see something going, well, hang on a minute, in what context is that true? Or what does that mean for me? Or just pausing and going, what does mm. that depend on? And, or you know do we need or want this small questions small questions that just encourage that sort of critical thinking lens and one thing I try and say in the book a lot is that you know critical thinking is not about saying you're assuming that everything's wrong and then trying to work back it's not about reading a headline and going that's wrong and um, I need to go work out what's true it's about seeing it in context it's about going 
okay, here's a here's a headline which I know newspapers need in order to sell ads, or here's a, a you know a company executive on the telly talking about things. They're not lying, but of course they want people to think well of their company. So what does that mean? You know, how, now let me look at the, the the message through that lens, and it it's kind of it sounds really basic what I'm saying, but I think again it's it's people feel that they're not it's not their place or they're not clever enough or they don't work in that industry, so therefore they shouldn't be questioning the experts and and whatnot. So um, you know, mm. and it's difficult. A lot of people question me and they say, well. What does that mean for anti-vaxxers, you know, because they're just questioning the experts. And it's like, it's not about saying, let's not believe anyone, but it is about each and every one's having a responsibility as citizens to not just take information at face value and find our own way of navigating through it with the help of media and experts to kind of enable that, right? Mm-hmm. It's fascinating because I think there is a fear of being thought of as stupid or ill-informed and I think it's much easier for us sometimes to fall back on positions of belief positions of inflexibility where you know rather than be challenged and open up to that challenge we kind of dig our heels in Mm. Um, and there's some really interesting studies that were done around the ways in which we conceive of intelligence and whether we conceive of it as something which is fixed or flexible Mm. and in study groups in which classes were told that intelligence is is flexible and it's something which can be worked with to augment people who are looking at challenging um, kids with difficult sort of, I don't know, problems like mathematical problems or what have you. The kids actually didn't consider a failure in the task as a failure in and of itself. They saw it as an opportunity to strengthen the muscle of intelligence, if we're going to use that metaphor. And I Mm. wonder, yeah, and and it's really interesting because actually the performance, the grades, etc., rose significantly and so did their learning styles change and so did their self-esteem mm. um, boost and so what you ended up with is a, a group of really much more engaged people who then become more likely to question their perspectives more likely to continue to pursue knowledge even if they're quote-unquote failing um, with getting the answers wrong sometimes and I wonder if there's maybe an opportunity for that in broader public dialogue Definitely. to not punish people when they get something wrong and go well, you're stupid, you got it wrong, or you did a U-turn. It's like, well, definitely. maybe actually we're going to get it wrong and maybe we can be a bit more flexible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the things I say um, in, the, in the summary because I kind of, I, I want to make the point that I think one of the biggest bits of hype or the, big, the strongest problematic narratives in science and tech is exactly this, that it's an ivory tower, that it's not mm. for me, right? Mm. And I say that, I think the biggest difference, and it's 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 not not based on a study as such, but but a kind of inkling and from the research of the book is that the biggest difference between those who are good critical thinkers and those who are not or fearful of trying to become is that good critical thinkers are not they're not more intelligent, they're not necessarily got more you know PhDs or degrees or a higher level of education or whatever. They're more comfortable with being in a state of not knowing. Yes. Even just for a second. Yeah. That they come across something and go, oh God, that's that's complex. Right, let's let's oh God, let's try and work this out. And I kind of <laughs> the way I sort of visualize it is this like tsunami of information, which can is what it feels like when you're up against something. You know, like you know, what is the deal in climate science right now? I mean that's a huge question. It's like where on earth do you do I start? Oh God, this mm. is so complex, right? So it's a tsunami of information and the critical thinkers jump in their little dinghy and they get out of their pad and they're like right let's give this a shot and they start 
furiously pedaling and trying to work out this information and they, they capsize every now and again but they get back in and they're like wow this is fun this is like tubing this is this is brilliant um cards but but fun and good and I, and I feel better for it and look mm. look all this exercise whereas people who are who are not really engaged in that way or don't feel able to they see the tsunami and go mm, not for me I'm gonna go to a different beach mm. and I think that it's I don't it's not just about being a better thinker or a more responsible thinker I genuinely believe ha- having this sort of critical thinking mindset is it's just more enjoyable and I think that people who are really in- interested in science and tech that's sometimes the thing that makes it fascinating is that it is complicated and there isn't a straight answer all the time and you know it, it does depend on what angle you're looking at it and you know questions of morals or what's right and wrong I mean those are fascinating interesting hard things to answer um that you you don't get to that point if you don't allow yourself to start thinking about things in a complex way you kind of are shut out from those interesting conversations and that that to me is the biggest shame um around all this it's it's the it's the loss for people that don't do it and and it's funny because I I, stu- I studied maths, you know, I studied pure maths, which is, <laughs> you know, for any any maths and science people out there, us 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 pure mathematicians think that we're we're the most pure of all, <laughs> you know, we have the most kind of right and wrong answers, you know, we're trying to get to the axioms of of numbers. And it's funny because when I was a kid, I I hated English at school because I felt it was too oh, well. subjective. There was no right and wrong answer. I hated it. I couldn't stand. I actually found complexity really, really difficult to deal with. And, you know, I, I hated stats. We did, when we had to do stats at uni, I hated stats because, like, oh, it's such an unexact science. It's not real. Ugh. And, um, you know, and, and me and my sort of pretentious pure maths brain was like, oh, you can define everything perfectly using numbers. I don't know what's wrong with all you people doing this <laughs> biology stuff. And obviously, when I got a bit older and, you know, in more recent times, I'm like, yeah, there's a limit as to this absolutist <laughs> way of thinking about the world. You can't really do anything with it. I mean, it's it's fascinating. It's great to think mm. about patterns and numbers and memorize digits of pi and all these things. I mean, I love I do love pure maths, but it wasn't giving me the framework that I was looking for to try and work out, frankly, how the world works. Mm. And over time, I've realized that the way you, you, you work out how the world works is by realizing that we live in a super, super complicated, interdependent, um, ever-changing society world universe whatever you want to call it and if you really want to try and understand it if you want to get to grips with things and you want to play a part then you have to sort of at the cost of being a bit uncomfortable about being wrong at times changing your opinion looking at things going this makes no sense and I'm gonna have to google this for three hours to try and work it out and 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 that being okay that being okay and that's 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 part of being a citizen and you people can critically think to different degrees you can pause when you read a headline and think you know let me put my you know politics hat on and see what it looks like let me put my my gran hat on and see what it looks like from her perspective or you can sit and go actually I'm going to look at this over the weekend see what I think I'm going to read around this topic and you know it's it's just the sort of basic mindset of of not just taking things at face value and not looking for absolute answers when when frankly they just don't exist and and it's at our peril that we do that. Mm. So in terms of what you personally have maybe come to discover anew during this really weird moment in time, what's something that you've stumbled across that maybe you've been surprised by with all of this uncertainty that we're encountering? Hmm. I'm not sure surprised, but something I've been pondering that I haven't really, I haven't quite got to grips with yet, and I think it requires more thinking for me, is the idea of guilt right now. I feel that 
guilt is playing interesting roles where you know from a sort of high level thing where we have you know first world problems right that's so that's been a meme for how long but at the moment it really Mm. feels like you cannot complain about anything if you're not on the front line or in the ICU or you know someone who is right and it's everyone's sort of prefacing any kind of complaint with I know there are worse things that can happen but or I know there are people in worse situations but and you know it makes sense of course but that life was like that before you know there's always been worse things happening in the world and we felt kind of more comfortable with how we I suppose how we how relative how relatively upset or stressed we are so that's something that I've kind of been thinking about and then alongside that I suppose maybe the kind of more actionable side of guilt is is around duty and what do people feel they should be doing right now and how they should be acting and how they can help and how they can be a citizen. And both of these things are really, really difficult to play with because, you know, the answer we have for what you should be doing is do nothing. (laughs) Sit at home and do nothing. Don't go out. Don't, you know, hang out with people. Get your stuff delivered. You know, stay away from each other. Yes, talk to each other online, but, but... Arguably, it's kind of like do nothing, let let the hospitals do their own thing. And then so you have this guilt of not doing stuff, guilt of feeling bad, guilt of feeling confused, as well as this sort of feeling of I need to do something. And so I suppose it's not necessarily something that's surprising me, but I'm really, really intrigued as to how um, in a couple of months time we're going to be able to talk about that or wrestle with it or what are the sort of impacts of that going to be because I feel like it's I I feel like it's already shifted quite a Mm. lot of people's lives in terms of what they feel is important in terms of what they want to do after after lockdown you know I think it's shifted people's ideas about their careers about where they want to live the amount of people I've I've spoke to who've said I'm not I don't know if I'll come back to London I think I want to not live in a big Mm. city now now that I've seen what can happen and all that sort of thing so for me I think it's this quite difficult to wrestle with feelings of people that aren't directly affected by what's going on um and it's I suppose surprised me how maybe it surprised me how little we're able to express that at the moment I don't feel it's been very I'm doing a terrible job of it right now you know I don't (laughs) think I think this is a very difficult thing to kind of try and make sense of shall we say (laughs) um so I'm intrigued to see how we wrestle with that over time yeah it is curious because I think I mean, different social media channels invite different ways of interacting. But one of the things that I found myself being really interested by was a thread that was in response to something that Matt Haig, uh, an author, wrote. Mm. And it was it was touching on some of these themes, so including things like guilt, the shoulds that we pile upon ourselves, our desire to... It's not even a desire, our tendency to compare our levels of productivity with all the other people who are learning six new languages and mm. five new instruments and all the rest of it. And it was mm. such an interesting um, dialogue and people commenting and clearly feeling very touched by the themes that he'd cracked open. And there is this sense of, and I think it reflects many wider Western cultures, but there is this sense of how do I most utilize this time to kind of, I don't know, skill up or become better or mm-hmm. do more, be more, And in fact, I think some of the more interesting conversations I've stumbled upon or had here has been, well, maybe what might happen if maybe we don't go down that path? What happens if we do sit with the question of, well, what's showing up for me right now? What what is it that I feel guilt for? What is it to feel Mm. a state of suffering or panic 
when, yes, I may not have a relative who's in the ICU, but actually I feel paralysed or I feel completely unmotivated or I feel great today and tomorrow mm-hmm. I feel like whatever it shows up as I would love to think that enough conversations are starting to happen now around just the variety of response that we can have and the fact that all of it is okay to somehow share appropriately with people that we trust and that none of mm-hmm. it's like worse or better in terms of needing to be named and then also mm. be able to talk about there's just different experiences I suppose that's what, I, what I'm kind of looking forward to is not the right sentiment here but I can't think of what what the right one is I'm looking forward to seeing how how this is talked about frankly in a year's time two years time five years time right I mean if you think about the amount of discourse around I actually don't really like comparing what we're going on going through uh, right now with the war but there is a sort of there's there's connotations in some senses and if we think about the sort of psychological effect of the war from those who are on the front line versus those who just lived through it versus those who felt they were useful, those who felt they weren't. You know, mm. I, I'm curious as to whether we're going to be able to learn from, shall we say, the kind of, uh, forgiveness is the wrong word, but we're sort of saying, what are people expecting? There was a war going on. Of course they're going to feel mm. all kinds of things afterwards. And I'm. I hope that we have the same sort of maybe generosity around around that afterwards, because I I think there's going to be a lot of different. Everyone's going to have different. It's going to affect everyone in different ways, yes. and it's. I think it's going to be a very gradual thing. You know, it's not. I don't think it's going to be like the the end of the war, where yes, okay, it wasn't exactly just overnight, but there was a sort of official end date, shall we say? Mm. And I don't think that's going to be the same with this. And. So I'm. I hope that we, considering nowadays, there's so much discussion about mental health and openness and not being lonely and finding ways of expressing yourself and so on and so forth. What that's going to mean when there's going to be, frankly, a flood of reactions yes, and feelings yeah. and responses and thought pieces and articles and books and whatnot that relate back to this time. Mm. Um, I hope that we have the same sort of generosity to be able to kind of sift through that and find ways of each and every one of us kind of meaning something to us individually Mm. I really love that idea of generosity I think that's really something special to work towards so I've got two more questions I want to ask you the first one is a very imaginal Mm -hmm. one because clearly we don't know but what do you think or imagine the new normal will be when we come out of this in the next six to twelve months and when I say come out of this, I mean the first wave of lockdown because who the God yeah, no, I <laughs> who the hell knows? <laughs> well, I, I think it's going to be, uh, it's still going to be very, it's going to be different from what it is now and it's still going to be very different to what we had before and it's going to be different to what we all hope is what it, we eventually get to. And, and I suppose what I mean by that is there'll be elements of life that we still, quote unquote, don't have back yet. Like I, I, I'm, I'd be surprised if huge big mm. gatherings and travel, or I think those are going to take quite some time to, um, shall we say, await, reawaken. Um, whereas more local activities, I think, will become much more doable quickly. So you know, being able to go to the barbers or, um, being able to shop a bit more or, or so on and so forth, be out and about in your own area. I mean, obviously you're over in Barcelona, you guys can't even go out for exercise, you know. Um, so I, I, I suppose I sort of foresee that it, it that there still being another level of new norm where it's like, well, it was better than lockdown, but it's still not there, and then it happening again and happening again and happening again. I don't know what it will look like in once 
quote, quote unquote, that is over. And I actually think there's just going to be more stuff to deal with. You know, I've been, they're talking about more waves of this happening, more viruses happening, more different kinds mm-hmm. of viruses happening, not to mention everything else that happens in, is happening in the world in general. Look at climate change, you know. So I, I suppose I would hope that maybe we find ways of building resilience and maybe we find ways of, um, I would hope that we would have a more sort of social first approach to how we kind of manage society and um, a way of kind of creating policies that uh, protect things a bit better than what we currently have. Because in some sense, we, you know, people have been asking for this for such a long time, you know, whether it's universal basic income or more sort of social, socialist ideas being part of government. And it's only been those that have been adversely affected by the current policies that have really understood to their core why it's important. And I feel like this is the first time, certainly in my lifetime, and I think probably most people's lifetime, that um, we kind of are feeling the personal effects of this. That the There are huge differences in terms of class and race and whatnot, but at the end of the day, every single person is touched by this virus in some way. It is affecting us in some way. Mm. And so it kind of, I think, is creating a bit more... I would hope that it would create a bit more understanding around um, the need for more sort of social social care and social services and whatnot. That would be my biggest hope as to whether that's going to happen. I don't know, because if we have a very gradual move out of it, I think, you know, we're very good at adapting to what's around us and sort of forgetting how bad things were. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, in some sense i hope that the you know i don't want people to keep remembering how bad it is but at the same time i hope that helps create more resilience Mm. um moving forward Mm. and so finally for everyone listening what question do you want people to dwell with at this moment in time i think i'm going to go back to what i think is the question that i think i i wish more people would ask on a regular basis and that's do we need this or do we want this and there's nothing wrong with wanting anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can have that handbag if you want it or whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think having an understanding of what need versus want really means and being accepting of which one you're choosing or which one you sit in. Uh, I think it helps with hype in science and tech. But if I was to be a little bit philosophical, I think it probably helps with general decisions around society. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I think it's. I think if you want a sort of shortcut to critical thinking or a shortcut to understanding the world better or whatnot, I think asking that question a bit more frequently of yourself and of others and of you know not judging as a result, but just asking it and understanding where things sit. I, I think it's a useful, quick little tool to try and understand things at a deeper level. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you have any questions or feedback, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram at Natalie Nahai. And if you enjoy the show, please give it a rating as it reaches new ears. And also, if there's someone that you feel could be supported by the content of this series, just ping on the link. Thank you again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.